cliffcentral.com. Colin Coleman is a friend of the show. He's been a guest of ours many times before. He has also held uh, various important and senior positions, including MD for Goldman Sachs in South Africa. He has recently taken up a post lecturing at universities in the United States and is back in South Africa for the lockdown. Uh, Colin, when we spoke to you last, we'd just gone into lockdown. You'd had yourself tested for COVID-19, and luckily you'd come up as, as a negative. Obviously, quite a lot has changed since we last spoke, and uh, just last night the president made some announcements about our economic recovery. So welcome to the show again. Uh, how are we feeling this morning compared to the last time? Well, I, I thought the president uh, was um, quite brilliant last night. Um, in, in many ways, you know, what people say defines you is your crisis that you how you had how you manage crises and for me it was his finest hour and the country's finest hour as you know out of this extremely challenging position in terms of the economy uh, this possible contraction of you know in the order of six to eight percent coming in 2020 loss of many jobs you know it's very important that he came up with a mitigation strategy to you know minimize the losses to the economy, minimize the losses of jobs and mitigate people who have no alternative uh, sources of income and therefore potentially are starving. So uh, he came up with this with a strategy, you know, on many fronts, hit the nail on the head and I thought it was uh, inspiring. Well, I'm pleased to hear that because my initial takeout from the situation was that we are now going to be borrowing even more money uh, money that we don't have, we're already in an awkward position where our, our borrowing, our lending is going to cost us a lot more because we currently have, uh, you know, across the board junk status. And this is not something that the government have a huge cash reserve that they can deploy at this point. Um, I'm, I'm concerned also that while he's talking a lot about the most vulnerable people in society, those are not necessarily the people who can get the economy back to, 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 to up and running. Um, do you feel that, that there are any things that he could have done that he didn't announce before we get into, into the things that you're happy with? So let me just say, I think the, con, the con underlying convention globally about this crisis is you need to do whatever it takes. The whatever it takes uh, idiom, I think, applies here. Uh, in other words, there are many countries that are basically entering into uh, strategies that in the short term are going to blow their fiscal ratios but they're going to pick up the pieces afterwards, having effectively stopped the uh, the um, patient from dying in ICU. You know, this is effectively what we need to do. Are there things that he could have done that he, he didn't? I don't think really within the means that he had, he had to prioritize in their trade-offs. And I think what was important, the one uh, area, for example, I think was a massively smart thing to do, uh, was the credit guarantee loan scheme, you know, effectively for for businesses under 300 million rand of turnover who are going to be able to go to their banks, their existing banks, if they were companies that were uh, healthy before the crisis and get loans to effectively fund operating uh, costs for six months and they'll be able to get those interest-free for six months and then the interest will roll into the loan and amortize over a five-year period. And I think that's a very smart way of leveraging the banks uh, and the Saab in a risk-sharing partnership uh, that in the end is unlikely to cost 
the country very much. So uh, I think it depends. It's a bit like the Troubled Asset Relief Program in the United States. It depends on uh, what happened. But in the case of the Troubled Asset Relief Program, in the end, actually, the U.S. government actually uh, in the end made money from from funding the, the banks that they pulled out of the crisis. So they're not going to make money here uh, from taking equity stakes in these smaller companies, but they will help the companies effectively get through this period and keep the jobs. But at the same time, this whole crisis is a government-induced crisis because we don't yet know the full effect of COVID-19. It might actually end up being a bit of a damp squib. We might end up having a very, very low death rate, comparable to the influenza, for example. It might even be in countries like ours where the climate's slightly better, even lower than the, the expected death rate in countries in the Northern Hemisphere. If that's the case, and government did not give people who own small businesses the option of continuing to work during this lockdown, which they didn't, then the responsibility for that is government's fault and not the fault of those business owners who might have wanted to carry on operating. You know, I think it's the, up to the leadership of a country to determine you know, what's in the best interest of the citizens that they're representing. To play Russian roulette with the health of the country uh, is irresponsible. So I'm firmly on the side that uh, it's very was very important to get on top of the health crisis and uh, not uh, not play around and experiment with this uh, virus that's killing hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Uh, and so you know the fact that we early on closed down uh, and prevented the spread, and we're only three and a half thousand or so infections and 58 deaths, uh, you know, is testament to the fact that uh, they got in early. You look at Turkey, Gareth, by way of contrast, which is not too dissimilar a, a market from a, 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 you know emerging market state. They have an incredible explosion of this virus that is going to be with them. They're now the eighth worst country in the world. Uh, and I think they've got something approaching 20,000 deaths uh, in, uh, in Turkey, which is you know, a place we could have been. And if you get into those sorts of places, the disruption, the tragedy in the country would just be unthinkable. So the fact we've got a, on the spectrum of where we could have been, a good outcome shouldn't be used to beat up the strategy in the first place. Now we've got to get an economic strategy uh, that is going to work for people and help them through the consequences of this lockdown, which, as you say, is induced as a response to the pandemic itself. So the ordinary citizens don't really have control of the situation in the first place, which I think we both agree on, right or wrong. But going from here, we now have a situation where clearly um, governments all over the world have made their call and they've got a sort of sunken cost in terms of trying to make it seem like they made the right decision, even if they didn't. And countries like Sweden, in contrast to Turkey, seem to be handling this quite well in terms of the number of deaths, and they've kept their market open. Now, I'm curious as to how you see this rolling out, not only for the government and all of this money that we're going to suddenly be dispersing back into the market to try and stimulate growth and trying to help people feed their families at the very least. Um, do you think that there are going to be these horrendous statistics and, and these horrendous outcomes that we hear from economists of 50% unemployment, of a, a contraction in the in the in the the, the the forecast growth of you know 10% below zero, that kind of thing, or do you think that those are doomsday predictions? Yeah, so I, I, I'm not one that that uh, believes we should over 
over-determined were the, the risks here. I think we need to be balanced about the risks. I don't think South Africa is going to contract by 20% GDP, as I've seen some people say, for example. That just leads you into strategies that I don't think are appropriate. But I do think the probability that South Africa goes into a contraction between 6 and 8%, which seems to be the consensus, is, you know, severe enough to motivate a strategy that puts you into very strong reaction. Now, for the president to announce effectively an intervention of 10% of GDP uh, being injected into the country, which I think it may work out slightly less because this credit guarantee scheme, for example, uh, you know, the banks will take certain risk-sharing roles in this. And as I say, I think in the end, the losses to the Treasury and the government will be relatively um, small, if any. And and so, you know, you might find that actually the cost to the country of the $200 billion is quite limited, and that's a big slug of the $500 billion is announced. Mm. The other parts, the social grants, the unemployment benefits for uh, people who are unemployed will be incurred, and but that's going to provide those people who are most in need with important sources of income that they will spend on food and uh, buying clothes in the winter and various other things. So I think that's, in a way, it's going to feed the economy, feed the economic recovery as well. So I think those are very responsible, uh, needed, and required you know, responses here. Do you think, as some of the, the, the more critical and cynical people are saying, that this is a chance for the government to redraft uh, an economy carte blanche, to, to come up with some sort of socialist utopia? I mean, the president didn't uh, pause to, to throw in terms like uh, radical economic transformation and uh, a system of, 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 of equality and fairness and all of those things, which to me indicate that he's almost making overtures to the left of his own party. Does that concern you slightly? Do you think that there is an ideological basis that will be injected into this crisis that will, that will have some effect on the result? Well, I, th- I think whether you're a rabbit free marketeer, a libertarian, uh, a socialist or a communist, you're all going to have your own views on what structural changes should come into the economy. What is going to happen is there are going to be very robust debates about what structural forms should be undergone. I think what you've seen between the economic triumvirate of Ibrahim Patel, Prabhin Gordon and Tito Mbawani is a bent towards a mixed economy, but very much these are people who understand modern market uh, dynamics and are well-schooled in, in this, and a president who uh, doesn't really hold much favor for fanciful experiments and uh, kind of, of state engineering five-year plans. He's, I think, quite adept at understanding the need for an effective interventionist state, but at the same time the market economy to work, and he's you know, very familiar with the best state interventionist models like in China, which effectively oil the wheels of the economy and oil the wheels of the market. So, you know, those are stale debates. But I think what you'll see here is you'll see that 120 billion effectively um, rebooting of the budget that they talked about will involve trade-offs, which probably will mean what we have talked about before: getting greater bang for the buck from the public service. You know, salaries probably for public servants going down. You know, spending going from consumptive salary type expenditure into more productive, higher use areas like the health area, 
So I think you're likely to see a much more productive outcome here from from this well, rather than a scary one. Well, I'm 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 interested in that in two uh, two respects. First of all, I'd like your comment on whether you think this strengthens the hand. This crisis has given an opportunity to people like Tito Mboweni, who we both regard quite highly. And, and who I think has said some things which don't necessarily go down so well with the ANC as a party. He's referred um, and made overtures to the World Bank and the IMF, among others, whom we will have to refer to if we, if we need to borrow this money that's been promised. Um, in that respect, do you Jonathan, think… Jonathan, if I may on that… Just... Yeah? If I may on that, just sorry, just to say on the IMF, just bear in mind what they are offering is they're offering apparently 1% interest loans uh, effectively without conditions and around 80 billion rand of funding. No person in their sane mind would refuse such an offer because if, you're not, if they're not effectively putting structural adjustment conditions on the loans, there's no downside. It's effectively cheaply priced uh, you know, accessible loans at a time of illiquidity. So, you know, that I think uh, the president has managed. You may have seen that Kasatu uh, came out in favor of accepting IMF loans last night before the president's speech. Sorry, that's just an aside. Okay, no, no, that's useful information right. because because usually and up to now the, the conversation has been that if we borrow money from the IMF that there are going to be conditions attached to that. You're telling me that this is a non, no conditions, 1% uh, and, and quite substantial loan. Yeah, that's my understanding. Okay. So that being the case, then do you think that this strengthens Tito's hand in the cabinet? Do you think that it allows people like uh, Cyril Ramaphosa and Tito Mboweni and others um, who, who perhaps are not on the extreme left wing or even in the, in the corrupt pre-Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, you know, Jacob Zuma era, uh, that there are a lot of, of stragglers and hangers-on who are enmeshed in this network of patronage? Do you think those people's case has been weakened by this situation? Well, what you've seen is the Zuma supporters in the ANC being extraordinarily quiet through this period and mm-hmm. effectively falling behind the president and falling behind the president's leadership and, and the president effectively seizing more and more power in the situation. One, what's happening is I think it's an overwhelmingly positive response by South Africans as a whole to the president and his, uh, and his initiatives, both on the health crisis and on the economic crisis. And two, uh, what you've seen is you've seen various people in the ANC uniting behind the president, and his power is definitely consolidating for the benefit of, of um, you know, democracy here. And the people who are the um, <clears throat> the modern modernizers within the party and the Democrats within the party, people like Pravin Gordon and and Tito Mboweni are benefiting enormously, I think, as a result, and be giving more space to undertake these reforms. But, but, so, but Pravin, Pravin, the, Gordon, the, the, Pravin Gordon, with respect, has been part of the problem for the longest time in terms of state-owned entities which have been mismanaged horrendously. We see an, an increasing attitude of kind of capricious regulation creeping in towards the end of this lockdown with funny things like, you know, hot food can't be sold. And we see the, the, the army and the police... Yeah, but that's got uh, using, nothing to do with using a little bit. No, no, no. But but this is part of 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 a, of a certain mindset within the ANC, which has also led to the the disaster that is our public enterprises. And we can't disregard that. We can't pretend that Pravin Gordon wasn't there while all of these things were being handled really badly. Yeah. Look, I um, what I would say is, I was actually going to 
to say in regards to South African Airways, mm. um, you know, it's it's very clear this crisis is the death knell of South African Airways. Right. Uh, it may emerge in a different form from what we know, but South African Airways, as we know, I think is effectively dead. Much more importantly, ESCOM, you know, is the systemic, much more important here. And I think, as I said before, and when I was last on the show a month ago, Andre Dureta, I think he's doing a fabulous job mm-hmm. of bringing a fresh, very clear, very precise vision to where ESCOM should be going. And the minister, as far as I understand it, is supporting him very strongly. And I think he's, you know, at the beginning of that road, but it's a very solid beginning. So I think that we're in a much better place on where we are going forward on ESCOM. Having said that, the economic crisis in the world is going to make it more difficult for ESCOM to restructure its balance sheet, which is an urgent requirement. But I think the time for experiments, whether it is trying to keep SAA afloat and Mm -hmm. paying large amounts of money, or whether it's a sovereign wealth fund, or all of those type of projects, those those projects now have to be put aside in order, you know, to put limited capital into the things that are most in need. And we saw where the president thinks that 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 capital needs to go. Well, let's focus on one of the things that you mentioned just now that I think is a silver lining is is the public wage bill, and and this is something which I think a lot of people in this country have been concerned about for some time. Uh, it is, however, also the the reason that we have uh, a certain percentage of the, the emerging black middle class finding itself in better circumstances, and we shouldn't poo-poo that in any way. I think that that's probably quite relevant and valuable. Um, however, if if we do see any public wage cuts, if we do see a more efficient state emerge where there's less of this catered deployment and sheltered employment within the, the state, are we not going to have a massive reaction from the unions? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting question. And I mean, what what you've seen actually with the unions is that sometimes they can be quite responsive and rational to the situation. I, I would say their response, for example, around the IMF has been to effectively embrace a rational argument on a highly ideological matter. So they've turned away from their statement a couple of days ago where they attacked the finance minister we're saying the World Bank and the IMF should be a source of finance. Mm. And they effectively said, okay, we understand the arguments. We're going to support it uh, when the arguments are made. So the question is, when the arguments are made about their core constituency, which is the public sector workers, and we ask for accountability and efficiency, and we say, look, you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't say, you know, you want spending on uh, grants and unemployed benefits and things like that but we, we don't have the money for it because it's all going into salaries of public employees at this point in time, and we need to rationalize and make those things accountable. They're going to have to deal with those arguments. Uh, I'm doing a class tonight at Yale on Zoom, which is on effectively the entrepreneurial state and the role of technology in disrupting government services. Yeah, And that is one of my favorite topics because I think what you – what you will see now is the rise of Amazon, the rise of Netflix, the rise of technology, the rise of Zoom in this age of COVID. It's not going to be reversed. People now know that they can work from home. They're going to have to reconfigure the way they deal with their family relationships, their personal relationships, Mm -hmm. because the work and home place is going to be much more integrated. You are at home. I'm at home. Right. We're working. 
listeners are at home listening mm -hmm. and it works absolutely fine. So how much of this is going to go back when, when banks, for example, uh, go and they look at their cost structures, they're going to say to themselves, do I really need all those offices uh, for uh, data centers? Do I really need all those people to be in offices or can they be at home? They could be, they could be as functional at home going forward. So the role of technology then in delivering government services is critical. I'm an investor in a Chinese company, an online education company. It's a private company. And I'm very, I've had very kind of clear information about how China has dealt with the COVID crisis. Core to their response, which has been very organized, has been their ability to, to manage information in the society. Yes, it's part surveillance, but it's part just good organization. So they're able through the phone effectively to work out densities of people in particular areas and to manage the density, either uh, getting more, more people to move out of areas or, uh, and work from home or to, to have more people working in the offices. Yeah. Forgive me. I'm, having, I'm, I'm, uh, less, I'm less impressed people. by this. I, I, feel like, I feel like there's a price that China has to pay for having inflicted this disease on the world. And it, clearly it's emerging more and more that China has a huge degree of responsibility in respect to the fact that they didn't, uh, they didn't come clean on the figures right at the beginning. They may still not be telling the truth about the figures. I mean, it's outrageous that the number of infections in China has stayed the same over the last four weeks, which seems to me an impossibility. Uh, they say that there are, there are pretty much no infections in Beijing, which is only a few uh, hundred Ks from, from Wuhan. It's, it's the whole thing. And obviously, in a totalitarian state, it's, it's quite obviously possible to monitor people the way that you're saying they should be monitored. But it's also, it goes against any concepts of individual sovereignty. And I don't know that China should be held up as any kind of paragon here, Colin. Do you? Yeah, I've obviously triggered you around a subject that's close to your, your heart. So well, I'm winding a, I up a little bit. I but think perhaps, it, I mean, don't you but, think, don't but, you think that this is disturbing in some way? We have, we've seen evidence of the fact that they've covered up and they've silenced dissent. They've even uh, disappeared certain medical experts who were at the forefront of, of, of figuring out what this disease was right in the beginning. These are not things to be congratulated for. No, but hang on. I, I was making a point simply about the role of technology in societies and how technology can be used as a positive force in managing government interventions in societies. And I was basically saying, you know, the the role of technology in disrupting the public service is going to be a huge theme in the next 20 years. What we're learning from COVID is the benefits of organizing society are huge, but there are also lots of privacy and confidentiality and you know, anti-democratic tendency arguments that you will use against it. So these are the precisely the things that people need to debate as we come out of the COVID crisis. So what are the role of governments? What is mm. the role of politicians in crisis? What is the role of executives in crisis? What is the role of technology and what is the role of privacy to ensure that there's a balance between de democracy and delivery? What you don't want, and you will be, I know you'll be 100% on my side in saying you don't want inefficient delivery of services, therefore technology is good. Yeah. Uh, and then you'll say at the same time, you don't want your democratic rights to, to be diluted in any way. And therefore, technology has privacy problems associated with it. So it's a fascinating debate. But somewhere in the middle, I'm sure that in the next 20 years, uh, we are going to see uh, society find its uh, common ground in here. And I'm also sure that things are not, not going to look the same 
in 20 years' time with respect to government delivery of services. Education, health, passports, uh, all sorts, all manner but, of delivery but of services. I, look, while I, I agree with you that the, these, are, these are things to look forward to, and, and I'm as excited as you are about the, the possibilities that technology affords us, especially when it comes to things like service delivery. But any technology is only as good as the people in whose hands it rests. And I'm concerned that we are we're putting faith in the in in the the, the the means, the actual technological devices rather than in those people who may have very nefarious intentions. And we know that politics does not always attract the best people, and that those people are very seldom um judged on merit in terms of, of their, their efficacy in, in office, certainly not on this continent uh, above all. But I, I, I want to talk to you about something else because David Cameron's very involved in the way that NGOs, that government departments, that, um, that, that parastatals might be able to operate better with technology. Have you had any interactions with, with his uh, new businesses and, and the, the organizations he's involved with in the UK? Because this is right up your alley. Yeah, I've had recent interactions with Mark Carney that was involved with David Cameron's government when he was the uh, Bank of England governor. He's now running uh, the climate change conference, uh, the next climate change conference. But um, I, also in the Yale uh, environment, as a senior fellow at Yale, there's been a couple of letters that have come out of those sorts of uh, sources, which have effectively called for a global coordination of interventions um, around COVID and global coordination of efforts to get money into the hands of uh, most needing countries and obviously into civil society. Uh, and they are, I think, uh, a very important voice because what you have at the moment is you have a, a situation where everybody puts their own country first, you know, America first, this first, that first, rather than how are we going to actually, as a world, deal with what is a virus that knows no borders, doesn't care about class, doesn't care about gender, doesn't care about any divisions. It's just rampant wherever it can go and there's people that can pick it up and they can feed off. So it's very important, you know, in the end, even if the United States was to close down <clears throat> completely the COVID crisis to shut its borders, it's never going to escape the fact that, you know, Latin America or visitors from Europe or wherever are going to be bringing, uh, bringing the, you know, the, the COVID problem into their, into their shores. If, unless uh, no Americans travel ever again, or unless yeah. no, uh, no non-American is allowed in the borders, they have to deal with a global problem. So we all have a global problem to deal with, and we need to have global strategies and, and coordination. So one final thing, because you really have a good overview of, of so much and your experience in the market is, is incredibly deep and, 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 um, and detailed. So when you look at the, at the way that the world is starting to emerge through and after this crisis, do you think that there's a new system that's going to come into play? Do you believe that people's attitudes toward value and money and, and work will change substantially and that this is a watershed? It's, it's no, no question it's a watershed. The, the thing that caught my attention was, and I don't know if you saw it, Gareth, was the Financial Times, which is a very mainstream financial journal, the most important 
financial journal in the world, probably with the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and so on. And, and it basically called for a, the rethinking of um, society, including calling for basic income grants and various forms of getting resources in the hands of the, you know, the least uh, privileged parts of society. And so it was effectively talking about a new social compact for society where the inequality of capitalism uh, that has been bred over a long period of time, best analyzed by Thomas Piketty, mm. um, you know, has caused the world to rethink. So how do we deal with the distribution of resources? There's no better place for this to, for this debate to be tested than in Africa, because you know that we have 17% of the world's population rising to 28% of the world's population by 2060 and 40% of the world's population by the end of the century with 3% of the world's GDP. And this crisis is going to make that situation worse. Our population is going to keep going and our share of GDP is going to be flat or declining. So you cannot have that disparity between population and resources. And effectively, that was what the Financial Times was saying. And that's a whole new different social compact that's going to have to be arranged. And it's going to require institutions between countries, but it's also going to require countries to adopt a different approach uh, to resource sharing in societies. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time. I know how busy you are, and I'm sure that you are are ready to get uh, your lectures out to Yale now as well as keeping an eye on all the local news and, and affairs of South Africa. So thanks very much for your time, Colin. And it's always good to have these, these rigorous discussions and, and debates with you. You're certainly one of the most informed people I know. We didn't, uh, we didn't finish on the China subject, but we can do that another time. Well, yeah, uh, I, 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 want, I want to hear what you think of that. Hmm? You're sympathetic? Well, in, in, uh, in conclusion, I, I'd say, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed by the way that, because I've seen by the way China has managed the crisis that has evolved there. But obviously they had a big problem in that the local government in Wuhan didn't report up to the central government about what was going on. They tried to cover it up and that caused a huge problem. And I guess there will be postmortems about that uh, going into the future. But right now, I think the world needs to focus on how to unite about uh, dealing with this uh, COVID crisis rather than uh, blaming uh, countries at this point in time. We could do that at a later stage. I'll say I'm not sympathetic and China must pay. Okay. All right. <laughs> thanks so much, Gary. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Colin. All the best. <laughs> Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.